Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, my name is Kristen Turner, and this is New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, my guest is Sandra Graham, author of Spirituals and the Birth of a Black Entertainment Industry, published this year by the University of Illinois Press. In this book, Dr. Graham shows how folk spirituals composed by enslaved people, but transformed for the stage, became the core repertoire for the emerging black entertainment industry after the Civil War. She begins by telling the familiar story of the Fisk Jubilee singers who first popularized the concert spiritual during their successful tours of the United States and Europe in the 1870s. She expands this narrative, however, by including the crucial contributions of choirs that followed in Fisk's footsteps, especially the Hampton Institute singers and the Tennesseans. The truly groundbreaking work in the monograph, however, is her study of commercial spirituals and the performers who popularized them in all black minstrel shows and, at the end of the 19th century, in plays with music such as Uncle Tom's Cabin and black musicals such as Out of Bondage. These productions helped convince white audiences to embrace real African-American entertainers, although they were still constrained by white stereotypes about black people first presented on stage in blackface minstrelsy. Hello, Dr. Graham, and welcome to New Books and Music. I'm um, happy and excited to talk to you today about Spirituals and the Birth of a Black Entertainment Industry, your very recently published book. I want to just start out by asking you how you got interested in spirituals and in this topic in particular. As many people, I, I think like many people, I, I kind of fell into this topic. Um, I have a long history of familiarity with spirituals, although I didn't know what they were at the time. I sang them as a kid in Sunday school and in Girl Scout camp and along with minstrel songs, which I also didn't know what they were. But um, I grew up with a Victorian grandmother who was very musical. We sang these literally around the campfire um, and at, at holidays. So I've always known these songs. Um, and I had a career as an editor uh, before I went back and got a second undergraduate degree. My first was in English. Then I got a second one um, as a lark in music. But I loved it so much. I just didn't want to stop. So I went to grad school with no real plan other than to keep studying. And I was going to study Baroque music. I was a harpsichord player. And when I got to NYU, I discovered ethnomusicology, which in 19, whenever it was, 91 or 93, wasn't so well known. And I absolutely fell in love with it. So I jumped ship and was taking a, um, a course in music and politics and was looking around for a, a topic. And uh, you know, with great research acumen, I started leafing through the New Grove Dictionary of, of Music and Musicians and came across the Fist Jubilee Singers, who I had never heard of before. And I started reading about them and I thought, hmm, uh, there has to be a political angle to that. And 
from then on, it just mushroomed and mushroomed and mushroomed. So, you know, it, it was wonderful because when I started doing my, my doctoral dissertation, I already knew a good hundred spirituals just from my own background. So that fit very nicely and um, helped me get started with knowledge of a repertory at least. Um, why don't we start with some definitions? So um, I'd love you for you to just define what a what a folk spiritual is. You, you create three definitions. And so if you could just tell us a little bit about folk, concert and commercial spirituals so that we have those definitions in our, in our head as we move forward, that would be great. Sure. Um, folk spirituals, which Eileen Southern actually um, designates in her uh, book, uh, Music of Black Americans. And of course, she was a foundational scholar in, in um, the study of black music, especially spirituals and folk music. So um, first of all, a spiritual is a black sacred song that, um, and these were composed before the Civil War. Um, and they were songs of, of all sorts of mood, but you know, they could, they could uh, signal oppression, faith, sorrow, um, jubilation. Um, so they had many kind of faces, not just the, the face of sorrow that W.E.B. Du Bois so famously um, uh, po popularized in his book, Souls of Black Folk. Um, and in terms of folk spirituals, these were spirituals that were defined uh, by their performance context. So they might have been performed within Black culture, in a praise house, on the plantation, privately, but not for, they, they, they were for worship and not for an audience. In other words, the participants were the, were the audience. Um, concert spirituals, which were devised after the war and popularized by the Fisk Jubilee singers, were arranged folk spirituals. And so they were performed for uh, an audience. They weren't performed um, in a functional sense um, necessarily for worship or within the, the black private sphere. Um, and then after that, I go on to talk about commercial spirituals, which were uh, parodies, imitations, and modeled on traditional spirituals that appeared in minstrelsy, theater, vaudeville, and so on. Um so we have that uh, idea of your book here. What's a spiritual and these three different types of spirituals. Um, and my other question, though, was um, the focus of the book was really fascinating to me when I knew that you were working on this book and and you sort of your shorthand was always, oh, I'm working, at least to me, was oh, I'm working on the Fisk Jubilee Singers. So I had this idea that the book was going to be about uplift or about politics or respectability or you know, something like that. And all, of course, all of that's in there. But instead, you have really positioned the spiritual as being this really important component of the growth of what you're terming the black entertainment industry, which I think is just a fascinating way to look at, at a, a body of religious works. <laughs> um, as. So can you please, uh, can you talk a little bit about why you chose? Well, first of all, what is the black entertainment industry as you're defining it in this book, but also why you chose that angle as opposed to some others that at least, at least in my thinking, were more obvious uh, from the outside anyway? Sure. 
When I was writing my dissertation, um, there hadn't been a lot published on the Fist Jubilee Singers yet. But just as I was getting toward the end, uh, Tony Passmore Anderson published a wonderful dissertation that took a biographical approach to the Fist Jubilee Singers and really focused on Uplift and um, the American Missionary Association, which sponsored them. And then this wonderful book um, by Ward, Dark Midnight When I Rise, came out. And I thought, well, oh, damn. Damn, I I don't have anything to say. So I started, you know, kind of panicking. And then I thought, well, you know, nobody's looked at the music. And I thought that was something I could really contribute, looking at the arrangements, the performance practice. And as an ethnomusicologist, of course, I'm always thinking about performance and the social lives of music. So that became the focus of my dissertation. But after the dissertation, as I started thinking about the book, I've always been, you know, fascinated with blackface minstrelsy, and you can't ignore it since the Fist Jubilee singers positioned themselves to be distinguished from blackface minstrelsy. That's part of, of their uplift message. So um, I investigated this more and more, and I began to realize that this was all part of a very muddy picture. And there there had been wonderful articles about individual troops of blackface minstrelsy after the war, but no, um, no comprehensive study of blackface minstrelsy and its many tentacles um, that just infiltrated all levels of popular culture at the time. And I thought there were, there were plenty of there was a lot of scholarship that looked back on this time, like the last quarter of the century, that made assumptions about what was going on, but nobody had really gone into the primary sources and said, this affected this, affected this, affected this. And once I started to try to do that, I understood why, because it's really hard. And the, um, the sources are ephemeral and this was music that people didn't think was important so there aren't you know although there are archives of of uh, playbills and posters and things like that the kind of um the diaries and the kind of sources that exist for other types of music more popular music more mainstream music didn't necessarily exist for this so uh hence the long gestation period of this book um so i I really felt like um, there needed to be a more comprehensive look at this. And, and the more I thought about this, the more it gradually dawned on me that in looking at Jubilee groups and looking at minstrelsy and looking at black theater, the common denomination was uh, the common, sorry, the common denominator was the spiritual. And then I began to think, well, if there is this common denominator and it's actually recognized by its practitioners, doesn't this actually form a kind of industry? And it's not an industry that is directed by Blacks because, of course, they're forced to enact stereotypes of Black lives that have been defined by whites. But nonetheless, they begin to subtly change the industry as they become impresarios and managers and, and so forth. So I thought this just became a fascinating story and um, a story that usually begins in the early uh, 20th century rather than the 19th century. Um, I think your answer 
picks up on some of the richness of your book, which is really quite impressive, the the um, depth of the research and um, also just showing the breadth of the industry itself. I mean, you have uh, a website that um, is just incredible with the number of Jubilee groups that arise and sort of the it really shows how ubiquitous the minstrelsy and and this particular aspect of minstrelsy really was and and the depth of research into ephemera that it takes to start on earthing this stuff and so the whole book is really um has that layered um is so layered because you've got this foundation of research that obviously I'm sure was really difficult. And so I guess one question might be, you know, where did you find this? What is your archive of sources? What what kind of source material were you able to use to um, come up with, which I'm sure is must be a huge of your own personal database of information that underlines this book? Right. It was, um, again, serendipity played a big role. Initially, I started off in theater archives, like the Harvard um, Theater Collection, which is so excellent. And I was based in in New York City for a while. So I used the New York Public Library, um, various private archives, Philadelphia Free Library. Uh, And then I also spent some time in Syracuse, Syracuse, New York, which is my birthplace. And of course, Central New York had a lot of towns on the Underground Railway, and they had, um, it was really interesting to go to these small libraries and just find stacks of sheet music and playbills and things that, you know, they weren't sort of destination libraries where you would go and think, I'm going to find a whole bunch of stuff, but I would just start talking with librarians and they'd say, oh, we have this or that. So there was, that was very exciting to me to find, to find that as well. And then of course, over the 12 years or so that I was working on this book, more and more newspapers came online. And that was just a godsend because um, you have these papers in the Midwest where a lot of troops toured. They wanted to get away from the kind of, um, the uh, roots that Jubilee singers, the Fifth Jubilee singers and the Hampton Institute singers took in the East and they were kind of played out. So they would go to what we would now call the Midwest, but back then was the West and they, um, they toured there. And so all these small newspapers came online and, you know, Jubilee singers were a huge novelty when they first uh, appeared on the scene in, in 1974, 1975. So there were a lot of articles about them. Then occasionally I would come across uh, contracts or uh, books of, you know, uh, costs and, and expenses and things like that. So there were there's letters sometimes, um, diaries. There was just a huge variety. And, of course, photographs, which were – um, really important. Sheet music was important. Songsters. Uh, I, I relied very heavily on songsters. So there was a wide variety of um, of primary sources that I used. Well, one thing that strikes me about this book is is your book and and some others that are coming out now. How. Um, dependent or how changed they are by the fact that we can read a lot of black newspapers and in a searchable form, how that big data 
has really impacted our field so much because you, you just couldn't sit down and read all those newspapers cover to cover. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, so um, I just I really think that um, that that has been transformative um, to me anyway in the study of black music is is the ability to to uh, get hold of that information in a way that is searchable. So um, I agree, but, but it also makes it hard to ever stop, right? Because I know you know this because you work yes. on this yourself, but, but it seemed like every week I, I would get newspapers.com would send me an email saying, Hey, this newspaper's online now. And I thought, okay, well I'll submit my manuscript next month once I've read this. So it, it you know, at some point you have to just stop and say, okay, this is going to be incomplete and I may, has made some wrong judgments, but yeah, that's, it's both a boon and <laughs> a danger as well. Yeah. Well, that's, I totally understand that. I feel that every day too. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's one, uh, one last question sort of, um, I guess process question or, uh, is that one of the things that I found so effective in your book is there are a couple of instances where you wrote, archivally sourced, but slightly, I guess, fictionalized accounts of performance, mm -hmm. um, where, which I just, I thought were really interesting. And I have not seen that. I'm not sure that I've seen it in any other book. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, about those passages and why you chose to do what you did there, as opposed to just a collage of quotations. There are a couple reasons for that. Uh, one, as an ethnomusicologist, as I said, I'm always interested in performance. If we can't understand music as a process rather than a thing, as an artifact, then we're not understanding music. And this was music that lived in sound. It didn't live on the page. It wasn't... Um, it wasn't like looking at a symphony where you're looking for repeated motives or things like that. Um, and, and it was also transcribed by people who were uh, not familiar with folk music or sometimes who were barely musically literate. So um, although I, I certainly don't want to ignore notated music, I thought that it was important um, to bring it to life somehow. And there were many. So what you're talking about um, is, for instance, I describe um, what it might have been like for a white young female to go hear the Fisk Jubilee Singers for the first time. And I try to create an atmosphere of what it was like in the church and what it was like if it was raining outside and what was the temperature and what what were the acoustics like and what was the lighting like? How clearly could you really see their faces? And how did the concert progress? And how did that touch people in the audience, especially those who had been abolitionists and who were religious and who were now coming to hear this music and it was touching them. And of course, this was the age of romanticism. People cried readily. You know, it, it wasn't at all unusual to cry. But why were these people crying? And, and what, what, what touched them so much? And so I tried to create this kind of multi-sensory portrait of what it was like to hear this music. And, so, and I also hope that this kind of draws in the reader so that they're not just reading, I don't know, dry history, but they're reading something that engages their imagination that they can maybe then apply as they're reading further in the book. I do this also with Uncle Tom's Cabin. What was it like to go see that? What was it like to anticipate um, going 
and hearing Jubilee singers on stage. So that's, that's, uh, that's why I did that. And these were all culled from actual reviews. There's very little of my own um, invention there other than to take random sentences from various reviews and cobble them together to make this portrait. Well, as I said, I found it very effective and, and a really great idea because um, it does, those passages do bring to life music. And that is so hard in a book about music to do that. <laughs> so, <It is. laughs> um, so it was it's definitely, uh, um, I felt like it was a great idea. Um, so, so now let's just back up a little bit and maybe talk about some of the content of the book. Um, let's, and just to at least start and sort of uh, chronological order and sort of the order of the book, um, your first sort of major players in the world of spirituals post-Civil War, of course, are the Fist Jubilee Singers, and then a few important choirs that um, follow in their footsteps, particularly the Hampton um, Singers. And just can you tell us a little bit about who they, who they were, what they did, you know, um, sort of give us a, a little bit of an overview about these first early groups that sang the concert spiritual. Sure. The Fist Jubilee Singers, of course, were the pioneers, and they became the gold standard for everyone who followed in their wake. I don't, I spend a couple chapters on them because you have to, and people need to know who they are. But I didn't want to make this about the Fist Jubilee Singers because, as I say in the book, they started touring in England in 1873, and until they disbanded in 1878, they were largely absent from America. They were felt as a presence because they wrote reports and delivered them back to the United States and the newspapers followed them, but they weren't touring. And so the first question is, well, if they weren't here, why did Jubilee Singers become such a phenomenon? And for this, you have to look at the multitude of Jubilee Singers who followed in their wake, and we need to give them credit, and they don't usually get that credit. So that's one thing that I wanted to accomplish in this first section of my book was to just say, how did Jubilee singing arise? How did it become a phenomenon? And how did it become an establishment to the degree that theater performers began copying it? So the Hampton Institute singers um, from Hampton Institute in, in Virginia were the first serious rivals of the Fist Jubilee Singers. But there, so the, the Fist Jubilee Singers were um, initiated by George White, who was a self-taught musician, and he arranged their spirituals. They were notated by Theodore Seward, who was also a white Northern um, church musician. The Hampton Singers were led by Thomas Fenner. They only had a mat, you know, maybe four months to prepare to go on the road, whereas the Fist Jubilee Singers have been singing for four years. So one of the differences um, between these two groups right away was that Thomas Fenner took 17 students initially on the road as opposed to the Fist Jubilee Singers 9 or 10. And he did this because he knew that they weren't going to be perfect, you know, harmonically, vocally. So he tried to cover those deficiencies by having more rather than fewer singers. Um, but he also cared more about evoking a folk spiritual flavor um, to their arrangements than did George White. So with 17 singers, you can split parts. 
So you could split the bass part, you could split the tenors, altos, sopranos, and thereby achieve a thicker uh, texture um, than just a one on a part um, SATB, soprano, alto, tenor, bass um, texture of the Fist Jubilee singers. Um, in looking at their uh, their arrangements, you can see that there are many more grace notes. There are more melismas. Um, there are, as I said, there's this thicker texture. So there's more, um, there's more of a tribute to folk tradition. There's more of um, a curiosity about where these songs come from. Many of the songs in their uh, songsters are preceded by stories of, well, we used to sing this song on Auntie's porch or, or whatever, or this song came from so-and-so. So there's that different um, kind of, of, of approach to the spirituals. And then from there, um, other groups like um, the Wilmington Jubilee Singers, the Nashville Students, Donovan's Original Tennesseans, they, they sort of followed in the footsteps of the Hampton Institute Singers, but they extended this folk practice to include maybe co costumes. So they would dress like slaves on the plantation. They would advertise slave cabin um, concerts, giving a, a kind of physical context to their, their concerts. And gradually, these took on a kind of ethnographic portrayal of slavery that differentiated them from the Fisk and the Hampton um, uh, student concerts. So that, you know, over time, this grew into a different kind of representation, musical representation of Black life. Well, this brings up one of the most fascinating parts of this to me, which is um, the difference um, between the conception on the performer's part and what might have been happening uh, in the audience uh, among a large, certainly not only white, but a largely white audience that these choirs were singing to as they are dressed up like enslaved people and um, talking about folk culture. How much do you think... I guess, it, how much do you think that this was received as, oh, wasn't it great to be a slave and sort of perpetuating the plantation myth of slavery as a benign institution and, the, and this nostalgia about the old South on the one hand, but then on the other hand, you know, were the performers trying to do something much more subtle that maybe was getting lost on the white audience? I, I'm not sure I'm asking this very well, but you know, there, there is this such a dissonance between what, what the experience of enslavement must have been like for those singers and their parents and the way that it was being um, portrayed on stage through these songs. Yes, that's a very, very difficult question to answer. Certainly in the case of the Hampton students and the Fist Jubilee singers, for whom we have diaries and um, alumni notes and things like that, it's easy to see that there was, um, there were conflicted attitudes toward this. Um, the Fist Jubilee singers famously were reluctant to sing spirituals for their white teachers. Um, 
because for two reasons, because they were sacred songs of their forebears, but also um, because they were shamed of the past that gave rise to them, not, not ashamed of the songs themselves. So for this reason, um, it was that the, the Fist Jubilee singers presented the spirituals within the context of what they called a service of song. They were not concerts. Um, and the, the Hampton students followed that model as well. So this was preceded by oratory, preaching, um, and, uh, programs with program notes that talked about where these spirituals came from and the importance of black education. So as long as these student groups were associated with black educational institutions, I think that they were very careful to curate this image of, of respect for the spirituals and, um, and to port and, and to convey uh, the importance of, of educational uplift for, for black students. But again, as, you get farther and farther away from this as um, independent uh, troops arose, like the Willington Jubilee Singers. They found it difficult to survive just on the serious image of, of spirituals. And so they started gradually incorporating elements of minstrelsy. And, you know, maybe they'd play the banjo, maybe they'd do a dance. And, and even if it wasn't intended to make fun of slave culture, I, I suspect, I don't know for sure, but in the minds of white audiences, they had to associate this with, with minstrelsy, especially if there was comic dialogue. So, um, you know, it's one of my frustrations is the inability to get inside the minds of audiences. And I hesitate to project what people were thinking in that way, because who knows, you know, um, certainly they performed, but I will say that they didn't perform only for white audiences. They performed for black audiences, black churches, uh, black orphanages, black charitable, charitable institutions. And I think that those performances were very different. And again, because of the audience and because of the situations, there's very little uh, there's very little documentation as to what that was like, other than the fact that it happened. So I'm afraid I can't really answer your question. <laughs> well, I do think it's unanswerable, but I think that that talking about it is really important because uh, this is an issue that goes on until today, which is, you know, what is the difference between the representation of black culture on stage and um, the sort of fantasies of white audiences that can take that representation and turn it into something that is not uh, not what the the performers is not true to what the performers are doing or perf or the performers background or whatever. It's, it's this is a very difficult issue that I think black performers often still face. I think I think I. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that this is, again, one of the legacies of blackface minstrelsy and also jubilee singing. I mean, George White, when he was arranging the spirituals, was trying to create something that would be um, 
accessible in terms of SATB hymn harmony to white churchgoers, but also that was different enough that would get them to listen and say, wow, this is, you know, Africanist music. This is something I really want to know about. Um, but at the same time, um, there was always the danger that um, with, with, the, with the stereotype of the black savage and, and the unrestrained black African um, that was so prevalent in white culture, uh, to see that kind of happen on the black stage, that was threatening. And I think that um, this, this is still with us. Like if you um, look at Childish Gambino's This Is America, I mean, blacks had to be happy on stage. They had to be smiling. They couldn't be threatening. And so um, I think that's one of the themes that he's playing with in, the, in that video um, that's still with us today is we, we're still wrestling with those white dictated stereotypes and trying to figure out how do, you, how, how do we stamp those out? Right. Yes, I think, I think bringing up Childish Gambino is particularly uh, important because there are certainly people that see some of the ways that he moves on that on during in that video as hearkening all the way back to Jim Crow kind of dance moves and, and the, the ways the sort of visual culture represented uh, black dancers. So we see that there is this long fetch that's going from from the 19th century all the way until today. And, and what you're talking about seems to be a very foundational moment when those um, ways of uh, performance and the ways the industry is created uh, become first codified, I think. Would you, would you agree with that? Or do you think it goes even earlier than the spirituals and what you're talking about here in the immediate post-Civil War era? No, I think, I think you're right. I think post-Civil War, they're becoming codified. Before that, they existed. But with the, with the solidification of this entertainment industry, they definitely become codified. They become a straitjacket and they become another kind of plantation in which or on which blacks are imprisoned. And, um, and this is, you know, it was both opportunity and it was the stifling of opportunity in that last quarter century. Uh, well, I really love how you're saying that. And and I think that's one of the main insights of this book and, and what makes it so powerful to me. Um, so if we move past the Fisk Jubilee singers and the Hampton singers, those sort of immediate uh, concert spiritual groups, and as you tell the story, they start to add more minstrel elements in. But at some point, it seems like they, they move from being uh, standalone groups that are touring by themselves to being sort of swallowed up, at least in some cases, by minstrel troops themselves. So what happens to the spiritual when it when it becomes part of this sort of behemoth industry of the minstrel show, which, of course, has its roots um, in the 1830s and 40s? Right. Well, many things were happening, happening simultaneously. And this is... Um, you know, if one of the probably many failures of my book is to, is to figure out how how do you you know you have to you have to write linearly. There's not really a, another way to do this, but but yeah, how do you portray all of these things that are happening at the same time? So after the Civil War, we have. Um, uh, the rise of minstre minstrelsy just keeps getting more and more popular throughout the 70s and 80s, and it grows into a mammoth industry. Um, 
at the same time, there is a growing nostalgia for the South during Reconstruction. So, you know, and this uh, kind of blinkered view of, of the rosy, the rosy blinkered view of the South as idealized and the happy slave and the benevolent plantation owner. Um, but at the same time, you have the continuation of minstrelsy, which is making fun of everything. So minstrelsy parodied religion, it parodied religious folk songs. But in the 1870s, those parodies started to merge with parodies of spirituals. And then um, with the rise of black entertainers, white audiences decided they didn't have as much use for white men blacking up their faces when they could see real black men on stage. So um, that was part of the equation too. And if they wanted to see real black men on stage, then they wanted to see quote unquote real um, black music on stage too. And of course, what was in the air, the spirituals. So um, you have all sorts of developments happening in rapid succession. You have straight out parodies of spirituals. Um, so Swing Low, Sweet Chariot called Sing Low, Sweet Children by Delahanty and Hengler. Um, you, have, uh, you have groups like the Hamptown students who were a quartet of white men um, who were obviously riffing on the name Hampton students, but who parodied court, uh, Jubilee singers in general. And then you have both white and black composers writing um, new songs that evoke a spiritual without necessarily directing directly quoting it, or in some cases, directly quoting it. So all these things are happening in rapid succession. And they combine to um, establish a new genre, which I call the commercial spiritual. And it's not that that's the most perfect term, but I think it gets at what those songs are about. They're written for profit. They're not anonymous like traditional spirituals are, but they, they, uh, we know in most cases who the composer is. They get published. That's one of their sources of profit as well as um, their appearance in minstrelsy. And they index commercial spirituals in sometimes closely and sometimes more remotely through um, terms like uh, Gabriel's horn or judgment day, or they quote a little snippet of a spiritual or whatever. So um, then, then we have this new, and, and hundreds of those songs were written. So that's one of the things that's interesting to me as well as if that part of the story is that I had, I guess in my reading of minstrels, had always sort of thought of it as before the Civil War, you get this, um, you know, parroting of black culture by whites and blackface. And then you get after the Civil War, and that's still happening. But then you get also um, all this ethnic stereotyping that seems to be new after the Civil War. And um, what you're injecting here is that part of the story about why that would happen, why they would go into all this ethnic stereotyping. And it's just fascinating to me that it was this, it's, as you're telling it, it seems to be uh, like sort of a, a, thir a thirst for authenticity, so to speak, that's creating even more parodies. Is that, is that sort of what you're saying or help me I understand that? Sure. The, um, the the parodies happened because the Fist Jubilee singers were so po popular. So the, the the minstrels parodied whatever was popular in popular culture. So that was the first step. Um, 
but then I think it was eventually driven by this, by the marketing of authenticity. So um, there, there was never any pretense that this was authentic. But once black minstrels like the Georgia minstrels came along, um, they could say, you know, we are the real minstrels without the benefit of burnt corks, whether they blacked up or not. Some did, some didn't. Um, but they could market themselves as the real thing. Even if they'd never been slaves, they could say, we are from the plantation and the the public would believe them. So that white troops, they had to find a different avenue um, gradually to, to satisfy the public because they couldn't compete with black minstrels on those grounds anyway. So um, when you move, so we have minstrelsy and all that goop that's happening there. It's so complicated. And then you've got, you move on towards the end of the book, just sort of all, um, another place where you see the commercial spiritual happening, which was in uh, dramas. And you sort of look at, it seems to me sort of two types. One is the Uncle Tom dramas. And the other one is a few examples of dramas by African-Americans um, out of bondage is one. Another one is Pauline Hopkins' Peculiar Sam. You talk a little bit about this sort of last iteration of the commercial spiritual that you see happening um, sort of after it has really uh, become such a part of uh, the minstrelsy scene. Sure. The... The um, well, so just for for those who might not know about Uncle Tom's Cabin, um, it it certainly um, was one of the most popular books in the history of the United States, and everybody knew about it in the nineteenth century. And there were stage productions of it starting in eighteen fifty two. Of course, this was an abolitionist play, and then after the Civil War. Why would people go see it? The war had been won. Um, emancipation had been achieved. So it started to um, change in, in, in various ways. And one of the most um, famous productions of it uh, was by Mr. and Mrs. G.C. Howard. And they were the first to incorporate Jubilee Singers. It was just another gimmick to get people to come. And so um, the Jubilee Singers added a whole level of verisimilitude to the production um, by singing spirituals, by singing hymns, but also singing kind of minstrel songs as well during the production. And they became so popular, they were widely copied almost immediately. So that Jubilee singers began to be featured in all manner of plays, even if they had nothing to do with slavery. So that, that just became a trend um, that lasted throughout uh, the rest of the century. And it also was the downfall of the term Jubilee, which at one time had meant a student singer of spirituals. And by the end of the century, just was, was coded black song without any further um, definition than that. Um, but then we also have people, as you mentioned, like Elizabeth Hopkins and the higher sisters who um, began uh, putting on, producing these plays that talked about the emancipation of, of Black people. And with the Higher Sisters, I think it's really interesting because typically, like they, they would have in Out of Bondage, they would begin on the plantation where the typical songs would be spirituals. But at the end, they 
um, go through these transformations and end up as free people where they no longer sing spirituals, but they sing um, white songs or different kinds of songs. Whereas to me, what was fascinating is that with Elizabeth Hopkins's um, Peculiar Sam, when the characters were emancipated at the end, they'd achieved freedom. They didn't forget their roots and they still acknowledged and paid tribute to the spirituals. And so I thought that was just a really significant moment. Um, it's not one that necessarily had lasting impact, but I think it was a really important moment um, where in the popular theater realm, that was acknowledged, that heritage and that legacy. And, and it was paid respect, even though these were comic plays. Um, and then, of course, in the 90s, uh, we have the rise of these kind of monster shows like Black America and South Before the War. Even in the 1980s, we had um, the Georgia Minstrels and Haverly's Minstrels who were recreating cotton plantations in public parks where people could go and uh, um, uh, wander around the cotton fields while they're listening to spirituals and other things. So these kind of ethnographic um, uh, representations were another trend. And it all just kept growing and growing and getting out of hand until the march toward jazz in the uh, 1890s and we had ragtime. And gradually um, the spirituals and jubilee and these kind of ethnographic uh, slave shows uh, receded and new things took their place. So I want, there's one other kind of big um, uh, phenomenon that you cover in the book that I'd like to talk about before we wrap this up. And it's so big that I think it's easier to talk about in specific example. And that is the um, really complicated interaction between these black performers who were primarily working for white people, whether that is George White is the conductor of the Fisk Jubilee Singers or some of the um, empresarios who are in charge of the all black minstrel troops, that sort of thing. Um, so I, there's no, that's such a complicated thing that I don't think there's any way to generalize across the relationships that these white men had with their black employees and what the level of control they had over what was being put on the stage. So I was wondering if maybe you could pick one example of that, that you found particularly rich or interesting that you could talk about for the audience, just to give them a taste of those kinds of relationships that um, are endemic throughout the industry, that this is the, the normally uh, black performers were not being employed and run by black managers. They were usually being uh, working for white people. I'm going to give you two examples. One is a short one and one is a longer one. And they come from different realms. realms. One is Thomas Rutling, who was the tenor for the original Jubilee Singers. He ended up, after the original troupe disbanded in 1878, he ended up staying in England and where he taught voice. And um, he resided in England and he concertized a little bit. And around 1900 or 1901, he wrote his autobiography called Tom, an autobiography. And it included at the end... Um, as did narratives of the Fist Jubilee singers. It included, um, I can't remember how many transcriptions of, of uh, spirituals that the Fist Jubilee singers had sung that he claimed the white transcribers 
had misrepresented. So this is interesting to me on so many levels. Um, one is that it, it introduces doubt, and of course, doubt already existed, but it increases the level of doubt that the original transcriptions in any way represented what the, how the Fistubly singers really sounded. So um, we already know that. But the ways in which their sound differed from the transcription is really interesting. Um, and if you look at his, you see many more melismas, for example, more grace notes, more... Um, more kinds of annotations that lead us to believe that maybe their approach to pitch wasn't as precise as everyone liked to claim. At the same time, um, he muddies the waters by adding piano accompaniments to this that didn't exist in the original transcriptions because he wants to make them accessible to the home audience. So, um, you know, that, that becomes really difficult. But, but the fact that this even exists um, makes us realize that there are two very different stories um, here. And it would be really interesting to try to investigate that on a deeper level. In the area of minstrelsy, of course, I go into the career of Sam Lucas in great detail. Um, Sam Lucas uh, began as a minstrel. He was self-taught. He grew up, we know from his biography, he grew up hearing spirituals that his mom sang to him. And he played the game initially. Um, he was a member um, of the Georgia Minstrels. He was a, a gifted comedian. He was an actor. He worked with the Hires Sisters and Pauline Hopkins. And throughout his career, he, he, his goal was to leave minstrelsy behind. And how was he going to do that? He was going to do that by um, performing songs that were not racially identified in any way. So he wanted to perform character songs and um, motto songs, and he wanted to be in plays that weren't about racial identity. He wanted to be a vaudeville star. And so his whole career is a kind of quest um, for this kind of legitimate acceptance that isn't just focused on his race. Of course, in the end, he ends his career by working with uh, Williams and Walker and that whole group of people who um, were creating the first big wave of black theater um, in the first decade of, of, of the 20th century. Uh, but he he worked with whites, like he, he hired George Bradford to write a play for him. George Bradford was white, and George Bradford actually wrote plays for um, the Higher Sisters as well. Um, he collaborated with white minstrels. He sang their songs willingly, um, it appears. So there's this push and pull throughout his career um, that I don't think any black performer could avoid. Uh, and so there were certainly, there was certainly respect between black and white minstrels. Absolutely. Like you can see that, but there was also denigration. Um, and that comes out in all sorts of virulently racist commercial spirituals that, that one can find. Um, and I don't deal with those terribly much because 
it's such an obvious point to make that 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 kind of racism existed. I was just more interested in in looking at ways that those kinds of relationships were more complicated than they appear to be on this on the surface. So I don't know if that kind of answers your question. No, that's absolutely what I was hoping you would talk about. And I'm so glad you uh, brought up Sam Lucas, who is such a towering figure and one who whose career was so long and um, so varied. And as you say, you can see him um, both in when you talk about him and then later on really trying to not only open up his own career, but also bring a lot of other uh, performers with him in in his his quest for the legitimate stage, I guess. And the as you say, to be try to um, have as many career opportunities that were as varied as his white um, white counterparts had and um, as many different kinds of parts, that kind of thing. I definitely think you can see that in his work. Yeah, and he, I mean, he exceeded the, the success of his white counterparts in most instances, beginning in 1873-74 with, um, with the Georgia minstrels. His career traversed minstrelsy, vaudeville, the stage. Um, uh, he, he did black songs. He did white songs. He did character songs. He did black theater. And then he ended his career playing in a silent film, playing the part of Uncle Tom, to have appeared in so many different performance genres. Uh, people just didn't do that. Like if you were a minstrel, your career was over when your troupe disbanded, usually. You know, you, you might have a career. If you had a career of 10 or 15 years, that was a great career. <laughs> and he went so far beyond that. That's why I just, I, I, I'm, I just marvel at, at him that he stayed relevant and that he was that adventurous for so long. Yeah, he he really is an amazing figure. And I'm glad that you are bringing him out because there's not a lot of scholarship yet on him. And I think he is someone who, um, you know, there's a few figures that you can uh, take like him and see the tendrils that, as you were saying earlier, move from individuals out into all these different areas, just as the spiritual is also like this spider web <laughs> that yes. um, encompasses so many um, uh, aspects of the entertainment business. He is sort of the embodiment of that in one person as well. So um, yes. it's really important to bring him out, I think, for sure. Um, I think this is a good time to stop with our tribute to Sam Lucas um, <laughs> and end our interview. Perhaps you could tell us then um, uh, sort of where do you see this work going on in the future? Are you kind of done with this project or do you have a lot more to say about the spiritual? You know, sort of what are your plans now that you are done with this uh, huge project? I would love to do more on black composers of the last quarter of the century. You mentioned um, other people besides Sam Lucas. There are people like Jacob Sawyer, um, uh, people like uh, George Scott, Pete Devenier, James Grace, Fred Lyons, James Putnam, Dan Lewis. Not all of them had the reach of of Sam Lucas, James Bland. <laughs> um, you know, there there are a lot of people that I think need to be reassessed and to be investigated. And I would love to do that. My next project is a critical anthology of spirituals, looking at how the idea how ideology is embedded in notation. Um, so how does the attitude of the arranger or transcriber show up? 
in the way a spiritual is is uh, described or notated um, from before the the Civil War up to maybe 1930s, and I'm doing that for the Music in the United States of America uh, series. So those those are where I'm going, and I I think I will probably stay with this just because I have a lifetime of building up a store of knowledge, and it does take a lifetime to deal with this in a meaningful way. And um, although part of me longs for new terrain and new territory, I don't get tired of the um, I don't get tired of the music ever. And I, I still think that there are many important historical truths to find in looking at this. And I think that there are many women and men who need to be restored or in, inserted for the first time into the historical record. Their, their voices are important. And it, it's intensely important to me that, you know, I, I do whatever I can to, to allow their voices to be heard before I retire. <laughs> well, I am looking forward to that next project. And thank you so much for uh, coming on to New Books and Music. And um, thank you. Chris. All right. Well, thank you very much. Goodbye. Okay.